Well, we are here this morning to study God's Word, and that's what we're going to do. Turn in your Bibles then to Matthew's Gospel, where we left off the last time, in chapter 17. The end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17 introduce to us an amazing event that began in chapter 16 when Jesus was telling his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem and that they would take him He would suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the elders, the scribes, and they would kill him. And he would be raised on the third day. Well, that's what sparked the response from Peter, who said, Not so, Lord. May it never be. Peter didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. He didn't want Jesus to die. He wanted Jesus to reign. And what's this about the raising from the dead anyway? If you're not going to die, and I don't want you to die, there's no need to worry about being raised from the dead. That's going to come later. Peter knew that there was to be a resurrection. It was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. In chapter 12 of Daniel, we see that very specific statement that Daniel makes that there will be a resurrection, a general resurrection, they thought, where the righteous would be raised to righteousness, and the unrighteous would be raised to unrighteousness. And they all, the Jews everywhere, believed in that resurrection. Remember, in John's Gospel, John relates the story of Mary and Martha, whose brother Lazarus had died, and Martha came to Jesus after the death of her brother, and she met with Jesus on his way to meet them, and she said, Lord, if you had been here my brother would not have died. Well, Jesus compassionately tries to administer the truth to that wonderful woman. And he said, he'll raise again. And she said, yes, I know he'll be raised again at the resurrection. So she believed in the resurrection. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Oh, Martha, it's true, he is. And he proved it. But here in this particular event that we're describing in Matthew's Gospel, the men who followed him didn't have a clue. They didn't understand it. So when he said these things, Peter's response again was, that ain't going to happen, not on my watch, or something similar. He said that it was not right that the Lord should say this. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. And that's when Jesus reprimanded Peter by saying, Get behind me, Satan. You don't savor the things of God, you savor the things of men. Just a short while ago, before that, Jesus had commended Peter for the fact that he had heard from the Almighty God and spoke the truth that God had given to Peter when Peter responded to Jesus' question, Who do men say that I am? Some had said, 
Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say Elijah. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was commended for that because he was speaking the Word of God that came to him. And it must have been a very exciting moment for Peter to be able to realize God spoke through me. But now, Peter's being reprimanded by Jesus for having spoken what he believed was perhaps from God. He couldn't understand those things. He was confused and slightly humiliated. But immediately following that, Jesus tells all of his disciples that there will be some of you speaking to all twelve, including Peter, some of you will indeed see the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you in verse 28 of chapter 16, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, that's quite the promise. Some of them would see the Son of Man Coming in His kingdom. They knew they were expecting the kingdom. Jesus had been talking about the kingdom of God all the time that they had been with Him. He kept on saying the kingdom of God is at hand. They knew that what He was speaking was something that would be absolutely wonderful. A completion, a fulfillment of all of the Old Testament Scriptures pertaining to the Messiah's return to the earth in victory, to reign in Jerusalem. And they believed they would be a part of all of that. So the first part of chapter 17 explains what Jesus meant when He talked about the fact that some would see the Son of Man. Three of them went up to a high mountain. It's most likely Mount Hermon on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. That's one of the highest peaks in Israel. Jesus brought the men, those three, Peter, James, and John, up to a high place. And it was there that Jesus was transfigured. We saw that in the first part of chapter 17 last week. He was transfigured before them. Metamorphosis. He changed from His earthly form to His glorious state. Radiating from within, the light shone from Him like the sun. The Bible tells us. But not only he, Elijah and Moses were standing there with him, communing with Jesus, talking with him about his decease. Yes, his death. They knew. How did they appear? We're not told. How did Peter recognize that they were indeed Moses and Elijah? We're not told. But they apparently came in physical form, talking with Jesus, Peter, James, and John saw that glory. And as we mentioned last week in Peter's second epistle, he relates that fact. We saw His glory on the Holy Mount. They wanted to make tabernacles so they could worship Jesus and Elijah and Moses there on that mountaintop. Then Peter heard the voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear 
Him. And then only Jesus was left. Moses and Elijah had disappeared from that scene. Jesus was now back in His earthly state, human form, no longer shining the radiance of His glory before them. And they descend from that mountaintop experience. Mountaintop experiences are really quite nice, aren't they? I I hope that every one of us here has had at least one, what we refer to as a a mountaintop experience. You know what I mean by that? Something glorious, something marvelous, something that God has done that fills your heart with such appreciation for the power and the presence of God in your life. Has that ever happened to any of you? It's happened to most of us. And when it does, it's a wonderful thing to experience the blessings the, the joy that comes from such interaction with the Holy God in our lives, confirming to us that He is indeed with us, that He indeed does love us, that He indeed wants to use us, or that He wants us to do something of great importance to Him that will bring pleasure and glory to Him. What a great thing it is to experience that mountaintop experience. But I also submit to you that most of us live a majority of our lives in the valley. And in the valley, there is desert experience. Oftentimes, there's wilderness. There are dangers. There are things that happen in the valley that would not happen in the mountaintop. There are things on the mountaintop that would not happen in the valley. But we experience both in our lives as we believe and walk by faith, we're going to have mountaintop experiences, but we're also going to have valley experiences. And you need to understand that those valley experiences are most important to us because they are learning experiences. And that's one of the things that we'll be looking at today. That Jesus came down from the mountain with Peter, James, and John. They had experienced a mountaintop experience, but now they're coming into the valley and they're going to see something quite different. Back to normalcy. Back to what they once were having to deal with on a daily basis. The issues of life. The questions that remain unanswered. The difficulties. The challenges that they all had to face. That's where we all walk most of the time. Verse 14 of chapter 17 is where we'll begin our study this morning. Where Matthew writes this, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Now, here's a man who has a need, not for his own personal need, but for the need of his dear son. Luke tells us that he is an only child. Matthew tells us here that he is an epileptic. Now, that's a translation from the original Greek, and it's not really a good translation. The original Greek language, the word actually should be translated moonstruck. And it was believed in that day that the moon had an impact on people, certain individuals, that caused them to go kind of crazy when there was a full moon. 
There's a lot of people who believe that still today. But that word was used by Matthew in the original context, saying that there was something that this particular young man or child had to deal with, not just when it was a full moon, but all the time. The man tells us that he suffers severely, often falls into the fire and into the water, not just on the full moon, but the idea is that he was impacted physically by something that was spiritually driven. In Mark's Gospel, Mark tells us that he had a dumb spirit, a demon. Luke tells us that it was a demon. Here, Matthew doesn't actually refer to the fact that there was a demon possessing this young lad, but later on, we'll see that Matthew writes on behalf of what actually took place as the Lord addresses this particular problem. From the mountains to the valley, Jesus descends with his disciples, and they find immediately the challenges of having to deal with life's issues. The man had brought his son to Jesus' disciples, the nine disciples who were down at the bottom of the mountain, waiting for Jesus to return with the other three, but they could not cure him, Matthew tells us. Turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. I'd like to read with you all of what Mark says, and then we'll turn back to Matthew, because there's a lot more added by Mark than what Matthew does record. But it begins with the same information. In verse 14, he says, And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. So first of all, there were scribes who were arguing with the disciples, apparently about this particular issue. They had been asked, to cure or heal or deliver this child from his demonic possession. They could not do it. The scribes took note of the fact, the scribes apparently took note of the fact that Jesus wasn't with them. And apparently they were arguing with the disciples about these issues. Verse 15 says, Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Scribes discussing with the disciples. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever it or wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And he answered and said to him and to them, O oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. He asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If 
you can do anything. The man didn't know for sure if Jesus could. His disciples couldn't. So this doubt that has entered into this man's heart, if you can do anything, please help us. Verse 23 says, Then Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Unique to Mark. Write this down. Circle it. Underline it. Memorize it. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. That doesn't just apply to that man in that particular situation, my friends. That applies to all believers. If you can believe. Think about it. Can you believe that Jesus is able? Can you believe that Jesus will? There was another man that came to Jesus for healing, and he said, Do you believe that I can heal you? Here. But that incident that I just began to mention is the man coming to Jesus, and he wanted to have that healing. I know that you can. I know that you can. This man didn't know. This man was doubting that Jesus would either be able or that he would consider it to do it. Again, read it. He says, if you can do anything. And when Jesus says, if you can believe then you will see that I can indeed do, because all things are possible to those who believe. So verse 24, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. What a statement. I believe that, yeah, yeah, I believe that you can, based on what you just said. I believe, oh, help my unbelief. Help me to get this really sunk into my very soul. I believe. I believe. Help my unbelief. Let that be our cry today. There's much that we need to be praying for in the world around us, and we need to have that kind of faith that is developing in this man right here in front of our eyes. I believe. Help my unbelief. Oh, yes. Lord, do so for all of us who have any doubts, who have any uncertainties in our lives regarding your power to do what needs to be done in our lives as we come to you by faith according to the will of God. May it be for us also that you would find us faithful to come in that kind of believing faith. Help my unbelief. And verse 25 When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Again, that's unique in Mark's gospel. Enter him no more. Casting him out is one thing. But Jesus goes beyond that and he says, Don't you dare come back. Jesus had once told a parable about a man who was demon-possessed. We've mentioned it in prior studies, and and perhaps you remember, I hope you do, this man had a demon. The demon left the man, perhaps was cast out. Jesus doesn't give the details about that. But the demon left the man. And Jesus says the demon wandered about in desert places for a while. And then the demon decided, because the man's soul had not been swept clean, in other words, he hadn't filled his heart, his soul, were the things of God. 
The demon realized that he could go back into that man, but he not only went in himself, but he brought seven other demons more powerful than himself to join him in that, demon, in that man. And the state of that man was worse than the first, Jesus says. Of course. More powerful demons came back. I find that most important in our study today because there's something that Jesus is going to be saying about this particular demon in this child. I want you to take note of that. So that's what Mark had said. Turn back now with me to chapter 17 of Matthew's Gospel. And continuing on in chapter 17 with verse 17, Matthew says much of what Mark said, but not all of what Mark said. He says, Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. That's all Matthew tells us about the incident. It doesn't tell us about the father's response, his belief, his faith, his having heard the lips of Jesus, from the lips of Jesus, the wonderful words, if you can believe, all things are possible. But he goes on in verse 19 to say this, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast him out? That's a valid question. Why was this not possible for us? After all, you may remember that it was just a short time before this that those disciples, all of them, went out two by two into all of the communities around the Sea of Galilee, proclaiming the gospel to all of the Jews who would listen and they were, during that time, casting out demons. They were healing the sick. The blind were able to see. The deaf were able to hear. The lame were able to walk. By their having the power to heal during that time, God had given them that power. Jesus had sent them with that power. They came back from that experience and they were proclaiming, Wow! What wonderful things were taking place as we went about those various communities seeing all of these miracles being done at our hand. And Jesus had told them, don't marvel at what you have accomplished with the power of God, but marvel at the fact that your names are written in heaven. I don't believe that Jesus took away that power from them. But over a period of time, after the traveling that they had since that time done, now they're faced with a situation Jesus isn't with them, as he was not with them while they were out two by two, but yet they couldn't bring that power to this situation. It was a real valley experience for all of them, wouldn't you say? They were confused. They were disappointed. They were disillusioned. They wondered why. What happened? We had the power, but now we don't. What's going on? What's the cause of this? Verse 20 says, So Jesus said to them, His first answer, because of your unbelief, I believe, Lord, help thou my unbelief. Why could we not cast him out? Because of your unbelief. 
can happen to all of us. We can be walking with the Lord for many, many years, and most of us here have been walking with the Lord for a good number of years. And there are times when we will be facing challenges. And our belief in God, our faith in God will be tested. We're in the valley. And it can be hard. It can be times of uncertainty that trouble us, that give us a sense that perhaps God's not with us. Don't ever think that. Because God has never left you. He never will leave you nor forsake you. That's His promise. He hasn't moved. Perhaps I have. That's something worth looking into. But whatever, it may just simply be that the Lord wants you to have a period of time in your walk with Him where it doesn't seem to be exactly as you perhaps thought it should be. And then it's a learning experience for you. Then it's an opportunity to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't understand this, but I'm trusting in You. I want my faith to be strong, and I know that right now things aren't looking as though that's happening in my life. Turning back to the Lord is always the right thing to do, my friends. Always. Even when things aren't working out the way you thought they should. Sometimes God's answer is no. But if He hasn't given you a certainty one way or the other, just keep on praying. Continue incessantly in prayer. Fervently in prayer. Don't you know that the Lord wants you to seek Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and know that He can be trusted in giving you the desire of your heart if it is in His will. You need to find out if it is in His will. And if it is, don't stop praying. Remind Him. David did often. Paul did often. Some of the most wonderful statements that Paul makes in his letters regarding the promises of God and the action of God on behalf of his people. He loves to give good gifts unto his children, Jesus had said. Paul said, he gives exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. Paul said, all things work together for good them who are in Christ Jesus, who loved the Lord. These are truths of God's Word that we can hold on to. The writer of Hebrews says, again, I mentioned just a while ago, He will not leave you or forsake you. Do you believe these things? Are these things true in your life? Do you walk by faith or do you walk by feelings? Feelings won't work for you, my friends. Walking by faith is the most sure way to accomplish great things for God. And He does want you to do great things on His behalf. Jesus had told His disciples, when I leave, you will be doing things greater than what I have been doing. I can't comprehend that. When I look at my own experience, I don't see myself involved in the kinds of miracles that were done by Jesus But I do know this, that which he was talking about has to do more with the presentation of our lives as living sacrifices for his glory. And in doing so, we reach more lives than we can count and we are aware of. So in that sense, greater things are done by his church 
He was limited to a 200-mile radius. The nation of Israel. The church is all over the world. Greater things, yes indeed. But it's by faith that we do those things for His glory. Because of your unbelief. He continues to say, For assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now I submit to you that that is a very challenging statement to me. I've wondered often, does Jesus mean this literally? In a sense, yes. But I think it's mostly in the spiritual realm that these things take place. I can remember one time we were living in Brunswick. We lived on a corner and it was a sharp intersection. About a, I don't know, maybe a 240 degree turn between one road and the next. And we were right on the corner. And in the wintertime when plows would come by on the one road and they turn onto the road that our house was on, it would dump a whole pile of snow right into the front of my driveway as it navigates the turn and moves down the road. I remember one night I had come home from work and I was so tired, but I knew that I had to dig out a place for me to get my car into the driveway. So I parked my car on the side of the road, I got my shovel out, and I went to work. And I got about, I don't know, a third of the way through, still not really quite enough. And I said, throwing the shovel down, I said, Mountain, be thou removed! And I went into the house. I figured, well, I'll come back maybe a little out, uh, a time later, an hour or so after I could find some time for rest and, and regaining the strength. And then after a long period of time, I decided, well, I better go back out and finish the work. So I grabbed my coat, my hat, went outside, and I looked. It was gone. God answered that prayer. Mountain be thou removed. It was done by the neighbor's son next door, who saw how much it was for me as an effort to do what I was doing, and he instructed his son, go help Noam out. He heard from God. He received a great blessing, but so did I. The mountain was removed. I love that fact that God can indeed move mountains when you are really, really in great need for that to happen. Praise His holy name. If you believe, all things are possible. Even those mountains. Faith is a mustard seed. It's not quantity, it's quality that He's talking about here. You don't have to have a large amount of faith. You just need a small quality of faith. And if you have that, this is what Jesus says. Nothing will be impossible. Nothing. 
And then verse 21, which, by the way, is not in every translation. I understand that to be the case. If you have the NIV or the ESV translation, you won't find verse 21 in the context, in the text. It may be in the margin, but it's excluded because it's not in some of the translations of manuscripts, rather, that are available. And the copies from those manuscripts exclude verse 21. That's common in the New Testament where you find those kinds of differences between one translation and another. It doesn't diminish the truth of God's Word. It just means that some manuscripts didn't get it down. And the explanation by some is that it was added in some manuscripts. The explanation by others is that it was neglected left out. Whenever somebody says, well, the best manuscripts say, ask them how they know they're the best manuscripts. Because they're probably quoting somebody who said that they're the best manuscripts, but nobody has the original letters or the original Gospels, so how can you know that a manuscript is better than another manuscript because you can't copy, or you can't compare it, rather, to the original because the original wasn't there for them to copy Originally, they did start copying from the originals, but we don't have any of those very early manuscripts. The best we have is something that's perhaps a hundred years or more after the fact. Copies of copies of copies. So don't let anybody tell you what the best manuscripts say. But what verse 21 does say, and I'm going to read it because it's in my translation, However, Jesus still talking, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. This kind doesn't go out except by prayer and fasting. You know, we're exhorted oftentimes to pray. And I hope that all of us do spend time on a regular basis lifting our voice to the Lord. I hope all of us are in the habit of praying regularly, fervently for the things that are on our hearts that God puts there for us to pray for. But I also want to convey this thought that for all of us, there is much benefit in fasting. In our study on Thursday night, we talked about prayer and fasting from a different context. But it was mentioned there as well that Paul believed in fasting and praying. Jesus believed in praying and fasting. There's no getting around it. There is a need for the church to take that into consideration. Not only must we be praying on a regular basis, but it's really a very good idea for us to consider taking time to fast. And what do we mean by fast? It means to remove yourself from some activity. It's typically done with regard to food. Fasting from a meal or a day's worth of meals or week's worth of meals, if you are able to do extended fasts and God puts it on your heart to fast in that way, then that is what you or I should do. But it's not necessary to do a 40-day fast. It's for simply the purpose of setting time apart in that fasting where you can have more communion with God, 
more time for prayer, a more dedicated prayer. If I choose to fast by taking the time to exclude a meal or a couple meals or a couple days worth of meals, I want to spend those hours in prayer, communing with God, in fellowship with Him, learning from Him, reading His Word, waiting for His answer. And I would be praying and fasting because I would be wanting God to reveal to me His particular will in a situation that is troubling me. That's good reason to fast. In this particular case, Jesus is saying to His disciples, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. That implies that there are various kinds of demons with various kinds of power There are some who are deaf and dumb, like this one was, or at least that they make the person in whom they are inhabiting deaf and dumb. Others are very powerful in a sense of strength, as in the case of the demon who was possessing the man that the seven sons of Sceva had approached. And they came to that demon-possessed man and they said, We exhort you. Come out of him in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And the demon said to them, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And then that man, demon-possessed, proceeded to totally embarrass those seven sons of Sceva by tearing off their clothes, beating them up, and they went out naked. Now that's a powerful demon. In another case, There were multiple demons in one individual. The demoniac in Gadara that Jesus had delivered many months before the evocation here. And they asked Jesus to allow them to go into that herd of swine. And when Jesus gave them permission, they did so and they forced all of those pigs into the water to perish. There are different kinds of demons with different levels of power. I know that there are different angelic beings as well, different kinds of angels. There are the seraphim, there are the cherubim, there are the angels that have completely different appearance than other angels. We're seeing all of that in the spiritual realm as it's revealed to us in the Bible. So know then that there is a difference of power that's associated with various demonic activity. Is there a lot of activity of demons in the world today? Yes, 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 yes. I believe there's going to be more and more and more as time goes forward, even in this country. Now, we are aware of a lot of demonic activity in third world countries, in other places of the world where there is not much of a church in existence. And in those places where the church is not in existence, there is indeed a huge demonic force. I believe that it has been hindered by the church. And perhaps the church, because we have been present in this nation all the time since this nation had been founded, which was also based upon the principles found in the Word of God, This nation has been blessed with God's protection over us. But I'm seeing things happening in our present day that are beginning to wane the power of the church. 
And as that continues to happen, the restraining force of the church is beginning to weaken. That does not mean that God does not have a remnant. And He does. And I pray God would allow us, allow us to be part of that remnant. That we might stand in faith, trusting in Him, believing in His Word, and proclaiming it, letting the light shine from this place, from our own hearts, to all who would come into contact with us. But there are many in the church who are falling away from these things, who are beginning to drift. And many are being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. There are things happening in the world and in this nation right now that should never have been taking place if the church had been awake if the church had kept its voice that it once had, we would not be seeing some of the atrocities that are taking place in our nation. And it's getting worse by the hour. Drag queens in elementary schools showing their stuff to children from ages kindergarten to 12 years old. Wokeness in our education system. It's getting worse. There was a time when most of us thought that the homosexual community only consisted of about maybe two or three percent of our entire population. Do you know what they've accomplished? And it was deliberate. Back in the 60s and 70s, they wanted your children. And they got them. The school system has been invaded by that mindset. And they have taken control over every curricula, even mathematics. Wokeness is present. Social justice, oh, you hear that phrase bandied about everywhere you go. ESG scores. Are you familiar with that? If you're not, get familiar with it. Go to the Internet and learn what the ESG is all about environmental, social, and governance. Those scores are being developed for a particular reason, for a one-world system. Things are happening. And I'm not saying that the Antichrist is on the scene yet, but he will be. And my prayer is that the church will ultimately be taken out before Antichrist is revealed, because I believe that's what the Word of God says. But while we are still here, there is work to be done. And the church still needs to be the church. So we need revival in the church. We need to be filled with His Holy Spirit to resist the devil because he's everywhere working out his plan to destroy everything that God has put in place. He will not win. But the damage that he's doing is evident all around us. This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. I'm tempted to read on because there's another great story here that has to do with our dear friend Peter. But perhaps we'll save that for the next time. But before we end our time together and enter into this time of communion, 
Read with me the final couple of verses that we want to look at this morning. Verse 22 says, Now while they were saying, or staying rather, in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. They're in the valley still. Jesus said something very uniquely different in this announcement that he did not make in the one previously in chapter 16, verse 21. He said, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed. Now, in some of your translations, it's delivered up. Delivered by somebody to the authorities, to the scribes and Pharisees. He will be delivered or handed over to. He will be betrayed. They didn't hear that from him before. Jesus now is the third time here mentioning his resurrection, either directly or by implication. The first time was in chapter 12 where we talked about the fact that he compared himself to Jonah's experience. When Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. Talking about the fact that he would go to the cross but didn't mention it directly and be raised up as Jonah was spit out by the great fish Jesus would be raised up from the grave in fulfillment of that great prophetic statement made in Jonah and he wanted his disciples to know this is going to be the end result of his dying is that he would be raised up again in new life He's mentioned it in chapter 16. He's mentioned it here in chapter 17. I will be raised up from the dead. They didn't get that. And that's why they were confused. That's why they were so troubled. They were exceedingly sorrowful. Because he said, I'm going to die. And what he said after that just simply did not register. Or if it did, perhaps they assumed it was going to be sometime in a very distant future and they didn't really want to even consider that as a possibility. They wanted the kingdom then and now. And what Jesus was saying troubled them because it implied that the kingdom wasn't going to be taking place then. And it didn't. And the reason it didn't is because it was God's plan for it not to. When we are in the valley, we can expect discouragement, sorrow, disappointment, disillusionment. But if we let it affect our faith to the point where we do not believe, let us drop to our knees and cry out to our God, God, I believe, help my unbelief. And watch God move again. He will, because that's His promise in His Word.